Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. I'm a feminist, but today a friend put up on Facebook an RIP for someone she'd worked with. And I thought I'd added a nice comment below. But in fact, I had accidentally added a sexy blonde anime character winking over her shoulder (laughs) in GIF form. And when I was alerted to my error, I found it incredibly funny, couldn't stop laughing about it, and didn't want to take it down. (laughs) She was just doing a little over her shoulder, under an RIP. I don't know where she came from. I'm a feminist, but in an act of what I can only describe as insta-delirium, I got too into the sponsored ads that keep coming up, and I ordered online a waist trainer. (gasps) And I don't know what it is. (laughs) It's arrived, and it's a complete mystery. I've no idea what to do with it. It looks like, like a belt with sort of Yeah, it's charging. basically a massive belt that's obviously far too tight. I can't get it on. <laughs> you have to not need the belt to fit into the belt, ironically. Well, I didn't know that, and I own one now, so if anyone wants to borrow one, I won't give it to you because I don't fundamentally agree with them. But <laughs> would, you judge anyone asked, asked, would you judge anyone who asked to borrow it? <laughs> no, I'd say good luck to you, sir. <laughs> It's interesting that you think it's a man that's going to ask to borrow it. I call a lot of people, sir. I'm a feminist, but I massively fancy the character of Mozart in the film Amadeus, who's sexist, unfaithful, and selfish to a fault to all the women in his life, because, frankly, I fancy talented men, so what are you going to (laughs) do? He's not a good character. You shouldn't fancy him, but I do. I've got a related one, uh, which is that... I'm a feminist, but I really enjoy being conducted by men because it's a (laughs) turn-on. I want there to be more female conductors. Sure. But I won't be as aroused when that happens. I don't know how many of you have seen the images of a young Leonard Bernstein in his prime, but let me tell you, oh my God, oh, what a hottie. Imagine Is that your fantasy to be conducted by a young Leonard Bernstein? Just you and him, though, he's only conducting you. I don't mind Alone in a a big room. Yeah, exactly. And then he comes towards the piano. Yeah, he was notoriously, like, very strict. Because he comes towards the piano and says, you are out of time, Yeah, yeah, and he's he's smoking as well. (gasps) I've got it all mapped out. (laughs) I think you'll find you're out of time. I need to set a metronome for you. (laughs) Nice. Mm. (laughs) Can't believe you got metronome into my sexual fantasy. This is incredible. It's very strict, is the metronome. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but I am... Jealous of female opera singers 
like personally jealous in an all about Eve way where I sort of secretly hope they sprain their ankle and then there's no one else who can do the role and then I get called upon <laughs> to do the role. I'd say including and especially our guest tonight, Nadine Benjamin. Are you owing at the idea that Nadine Benjamin's in the building or that she might sprain her ankle because I've cursed her? <laughs> the former, the former. You're just, Nadine, if you're in over here somewhere, and there was this mini orgasm from the audience at the idea of you being in the building. It was lovely. Yeah, I do, when I hear Nadine sing, I do, I sort of melt inside, but I'm also imagining not tripping her up. That's too much. <laughs> but her tripping of her own accord and me coming in to save her. I would definitely get a chair to get her leg up, you know. I'm not, I'm not a bad feminist. I'm a feminist, but I would accept a low and grossly underpaid position on a film set if it meant getting close to Anna Kendrick. I actually had a Twitter exchange with Anna Kendrick this week, so that dream has started coming true. Wow! I Did know. You? Oh, thank you for being as excited about it as I am. What I... if she were to offer to conduct you? I mean, it would work for me. There you go. There you go. You are open to female conductors, <laughs> as long as you're attracted to. <laughs> From the London Coliseum, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Rachel Paris, and very special guest Nadine Benjamin, talking about women in classical music. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis White, and today I'm joined by Rachel Paris to talk about women in opera and classical music. Hello. So you have a background in classical music, don't you, Rachel? To a certain degree, I do, yeah. I think if there are any professional classical musicians in here, then they'd be like, no, you haven't. <laughs> but, um... Just give us a cheer if you are a professional classical musician or you... <laughs> Loads of you, Oh, Amazing. God, I wish I hadn't asked that. Well, then, disregard what I'm about to say. But, um, yeah, I have... Well, so I've always done uh, piano and singing, and I studied music at Oxford and then... I've worked in classical music in lots of different ways. I worked in the Royal Opera House, the oh. rival, <laughs> um, but just doing like admin uh, and like a classical opera company doing admin. Uh, but I was also a classical musician for a bit. I was like a chorist, a soprano, and I was a accompanist and things like that. And also I worked in Blackwell's music shop in Oxford, which sounds like just work. Oh my God. I feel like I'm going to know you. <laughs> Let's chat afterwards. It's basically a, a staff who are people who like know quite a lot about classical music. You basically have to have like a degree in music to work there. And that was, as a feminist, quite interesting because I started working in this shop straight after I graduated in music. And the customers are usually like music academics who would come in and they'd want like a CD by a certain composer or something. And they'd instantly look at me, turn away and ask to speak to John in the corner because John was a man who was wearing tweed. 
and I'd that be would like... That reassure me, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it is, it's reassuring, isn't it? And, you know, I had, like, this degree in music, and John's only qualification was the ability to really, really pull off a Harris tweed, to his credit. <laughs> um, and I have found, like, there's feminism... Someone said to me the other day, like, you know, they knew I was doing this podcast, and they said, what does feminism have to do with classical music? And it's got so much to do with every element of classical music. The choral tradition that I've been a part of, obviously, is, like completely dominated by boys and men um, and things are changing but not quite soon enough. I think that's right. I think things are changing but not quite soon enough is really the slogan of feminism. <laughs> Just if you are in classical music, those people who cheered and you have struggled specifically because of sexism, give us a cheer. If you have never experienced sexism in classical music, give us a cheer. Right, okay, so it's, it's 100%. We've got 100% there. Can I just tell you something? Yeah. For the Blackwell's music crew, this is anyone in music... Going out to Rachel's so, homies. This is, this is really self-indulgent of anyone who's ever worked in a music shop, but, like, there's probably loads of you. Um, you had to, like, categorise the CDs into, like, you know, sort of medieval, choral, baroque, high classical, romantic and everything. And then there was a section called Recordings Non-Musical, which was, like, audio stuff, you know, just spoken word and things like that and poetry. And when we would get um, an influx of CDs by, like, Ian Audi or Catherine Jenkins, we'd put them in Recordings Non-Musical. Oh! Uh, but sick burn um which very funny very funny for us hours of laughter um if, if you didn't get that joke tweet in and i'll retweet it i think it was a music snob joke was it a music snob joke such a music snob joke oh i feel i feel bad now about it okay um all right, so we should talk about what we're going to talk about today, uh, which is women in classical music and women in opera. We're in this amazing building. I have to tell you that I do have a relationship with this building because, I mean, it doesn't know about the, my relationship. <laughs> sort of in the same way I've got a relationship with John Hamm, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's very much in my head. Uh, but when I first came to London, Rachel, I was a young Jehovah's Witness, like on a gap year. I mean, I say a gap year, it was a gap to nothing because I wasn't allowed to go to university. But I sort of escaped by saying, oh, I was going to come over here and knock on lots of doors. Now, when I got here, I'm going to be honest with you, I knocked on hardly any doors. But I was so excited to be in this world of culture and theatre, and especially to be able to come to the opera. And I would do this temp job, and I had absolutely no money. And on a Friday, they would give you... You'd go back to the temp agency to put in your slip or get your money in an envelope or something, as it was in those days. It was just before the Second World War. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, they would have a sort of spread which included grapes and things like that for the temps on a Friday. So I would get these grapes and I would put them in my bag. And then I would telephone the E&O, telephone the Coliseum. Where is this going? And <laughs> nobody knows. That's why, it's, that's why it's a good story. I would telephone the E&O and say, what's playing tonight? And, you know, blah, blah. and I'd say, and what, can I just check what time the interval is? Oh, and the other question I would ask was, uh, have you got any tickets left? Now, the trick is to ask this at 25 past 7 for a 7.30 show, because if they've still got tickets left, you're good, you're golden. I mean, I had no money to come to the opera. I think now we know where it's going. <laughs> Nobody checks your tickets in the interval. So I would come at the interval 
mix around at the front like with the smokers and then you just walk in and then I would just come and sit in a spare seat. You just sit down at the last minute and I would watch the whatever opera was on. I shouldn't probably be at the Coliseum telling you how to break in. That's so clever. But I saw acts two and three of so many different operas. Now, one night, one night, Deflate a Mouse, up I turn with my bag of grapes, ready for the evening. And I come in and everyone's sitting down and there's no spare seat. So I keep sort of looking and looking, there's no spare seats. And I think, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I think, always go to the authorities, go straight to the authorities because then uh, they don't suspect you. So I went up to an usher and said, excuse me, I'm so sorry, do I have time to go to the loo before the curtain comes back up? And the usher said, oh, uh, well you do, but then I would have to put you in a private box so you didn't disturb anyone. So I said, oh, that would be fine. And so I went to the loo and then the lady put me in a private box and I'll know which one it was. It was that one over there. And I watched the second half of Deflader Mouse like a queen in a private box eating grapes. And I've put that story in my film, Say My Name. Another character's telling that story, but when you watch it, it says Tosca because I wanted to give myself a cover story. But... When you watch it, you will know that I used to come here and this was my sort of spiritual home. I will make a large donation now I've told this story because I've got more money now. <laughs> Rachel. Yes? Tell us, tell us your story. Uh, <laughs> what, what, how do you feel about Well, it was 1894 and I was... Um, well, my story with classical music... So I studied music at uni and I played piano and I sang in choirs and I did all sorts like arranging for my... Because I found that the choral tradition, because I did a lot of like soprano singing and stuff, was so male. So I went to St Hilda's, which was the all-girls college at Oxford, when it was all-girls. Yeah! Just some... Blackwell's music shop as well, that person, I reckon. <laughs> which uh, had a lot of nicknames, St Hilda's. One of them was the Virgin Megastore. <laughs> Very funny, mostly true. <laughs> and, um, and we didn't have a choral tradition because girls don't get one. So I ran the little choir there and you just, it was just what you made of it, you know. That got me into like sort of the idea that I was just seeing so many um, male conductors. I mean, nice. <laughs> but uh, a, a lot of men leading, a lot, a lot of female performers, but a lot of men doing the composing, the arranging, the conducting... Um, that sort of being in charge kind of thing. So that drove me into attempting to sort of find a place for myself in classical music, in, in like arranging stuff for a choir and conducting, conducting them. I was a female conductor, albeit of a very small chamber choir. <laughs> and then I went on to sort of work in it as a, a piano teacher, as a music teacher, as uh, working in like a classical music shop and um, yeah it's amazing the attitudes of some of the stories from Blackwell's music are brilliant. There was this man who came in once, um, it's a different man to who I told you about before and we were playing some like crazy like Rachmaninoff on the overhead speaker and it was um, Helfgott playing it and this man came up and he said uh, excuse me who's that on the overhead speaker? What's that music? I said, oh, it's David Helfgott. And he said, ah, I think it's Glenn Gould. <laughs> he just, like, he asked me, and then he told me what he thought the answer was. Oh, that's the worst kind of mansplainer. 
And I said, no, sorry, I've, I know who it is. It, it, it's Helfgott. It's not Glenn Gould, because Glenn Gould mainly plays Bach, and, and this is Rachmaninoff. And he said, mm, mm. Then he walked away a few metres, and he just turned back and went, I bet it's Glenn Gould. <laughs> and then he left, and I didn't get to, like, shout at him. But that kind of attitude of, like, sort of knowing more was sometimes prevalent, I found, in my younger years. But did anyone here listen to classical music growing up in their house? Amazing. See, I envy you that. Like, I, think, I think that's such an incredible thing to do, to realise that, like, there's so many different kinds of it, and there's something for everyone, because I think it can seem quite if not elitist, then a bit like far away from you. Like, I didn't grow up with it at all. And when I wanted to do A-level music, my music teacher at school was like, what's your favourite kind of classical music? And I was like, how do you mean? (laughs) I didn't know any. All I knew was like the piano pieces I was playing and uh, the flower duet from the British Airways advert. That's all I knew. And I had to learn it really quickly. So I just used to actually really deliberately sit and listen to Classic FM. Yes, Classic FM, not Radio 3. I wasn't ready for Stockhausen. I just wanted Rack 3 endlessly (laughs) plowed into my brain. And Ravel's Bolero. And frankly, the soundtrack to Gladiator. But I think it's so nice, I think, to grow up with it and find out how many different facets there are to classical music. You don't have to always... You know, not everyone likes Mozart, not everyone likes Ravel, not everyone likes opera, not everyone likes choirs. You know, there's something for everyone. It's, it doesn't have to be, like, rarefied. But I found that out relatively late. I think it can be really intimidating. And hopefully tonight we're going to make it accessible. And something that, if you haven't delved into it before, you want to. Wherever you're listening in the world, you will find a recording of something. And wherever you are, if you are listening in London or you can get to London, you will be tempted and lured to come to the London Coliseum because right now the London Coliseum is doing the fall of the patriarchy season. Deborah from The Guilty Feminist, just letting you know if you're in London this Saturday, the 12th of January at 2.30pm, I will be watching Casablanca at the Cinema Museum in London. And before and after the screening, there'll be a live podcast, which I'll be guesting on. It's called Best Pick and it's hosted by The Guilty Feminist producer and my partner, Tom Selinsky. Please come and join us. I just can't wait to get into the gender politics of Casablanca. It is a beautiful film, and I'm so excited to watch it. If you haven't seen it, come. If you have seen it, you'll definitely want to come. If you want tickets, you can go to cinemamuseum.org.uk. They're selling fast, and I'm very happy at the end. If you'd like me to sign your book or you want to get a selfie, come up and say hi. Please, please, please do. I'd love to meet you. On Sunday, the 13th of January, this this coming Sunday at 4.30pm, I will be appearing at the Chortle Comedy Book Festival at the British Library, again in London. Now, you can get a full-day ticket for all the other events. There's loads of great comedians there talking about their books, or you can just come and see me at 4.30pm. But it'll be like a, like a Guilty Feminist episode. It'll be about an hour long, but it won't be recorded. It'll be about the book. If you would like to come, go to tinyurl.com forward slash chortle book 
for more information and to book, or you can just go to the Chortle website. And my show will be 4.30 to 5.30. See you there. There are also a few tickets left for our first Guilty Feminist recording of the new year, not many, which is at King's Place in London on Wednesday, the 16th of January. Go to kingsplace.co.uk. And we're also on sale for our International Women's Day huge special or singing or dancing at the Barbican Centre on the 8th of March, which we're doing with Guardian Live. Go to membership.theguardian.com forward slash events for tickets for that. And The Guilty Feminist is going on tour. These shows will not be recorded for the podcast. So the only way to experience this amazing show will be to come in person. Many of your favourite Guilty Feminist comedians, plus some wonderful music. They're just going to be exciting and elating. Please don't miss it. Go to guiltyfeminist.com for a list of all the dates. Now, since we recorded this podcast with the English National Opera at the Coliseum, they have announced a new scheme where under-18s can get free tickets for any Saturday performance. Other schemes for students and first-time opera goers are also available under Access All Arias. Go to eno.org for more information about all of these wonderful schemes. Make sure you don't feel opera is for others and it's inaccessible to you. And finally, those of you who've been following my Twitter or Instagram will know that we are trying to help Sea Watch 3. Sea Watch 3 is a rescue boat. It picked up 32 refugees who were in a dinghy, in a very unsafe dinghy, off the coast of Malta. Now, amongst their number are women, unaccompanied minors, children and a baby. No country will allow them to dock. And they've been at sea for a couple of weeks at this point. They've actually changed the crew but nobody will accept these refugees. The situation is getting really, really critical. Some country has got to take these refugees. They're from Libya and they've run from true terror. Please go to tinyurl.com forward slash watch 3 That's a short link to the change.org petition. Please sign it. Also, please message on Twitter or write an email to your MP and ask them to do something about this. When you see the faces of the children and the baby, you will immediately want to do this. So please help us get those refugees to safe dry land. And all of our love and best wishes now to Sea Watch 3. Now back to the podcast. Now, we have a very, very special guest. Our guest today gave up a career in banking to become an opera singer. She is currently singing the role of Musetta in La Boheme here at the Coliseum. Please put your hands together and make an enormous, guilty feminist, woo-hooing, operatic welcome for Nadine Benjamin! So, Nadine, were you always going to be an opera singer as a small child? No, I was into jazz and pop and I was brought up in the church. So, you know, there was gospel and as I got into my teenage years, it was a bit of garage and a bit of drum and bass. And so. <laughs> so what did you do then? Did you then go to a music school or a conservatory? Like, how did you get from there to here? How did you get from drum and bass to the London Coliseum? I went to audition for all the schools, but I didn't actually get in to any of them. And then I went to a consultant who was like this, you know, guru, who said, you're never going to sing opera, go and sing jazz. At which point I went, 
so I went to pop school for a year and made a rock album. And then I decided if I could make a rock album, I can sing opera. So so I wrote um, a business plan and sent off 150 letters to loads of people asking if they would sponsor me. And one person came back and I made my own kind of score. So I went and saw people privately and it's led me to here. Wow. So you put that all together yourself. (laughs) I do think more women need to start making their own models and finding their own channels because I think we're told this is the way to do it. You have to get on that conveyor belt. And unless you get on that conveyor belt, you can't get off where you want to get off. And it's never true. No, I don't think that's ever true. I think, you know, if you've got a burning desire inside of you, listen to what it's trying to tell you and take the walk that it wants you to take. And if you commit to it, the universe will just land everything with you. I believe that when you say it, Nadine. No, but it's true. You then went into banking. How did that happen? Banking was something that happened as soon as I left home. I left home at 16. And um, I joined... banking was something that happened? Yeah. Just you came out, you just went, oh, that's happened. Well, I... Woke up and I'm in a bank. Well, I joined a YTS scheme and I ended up in a bank. You know, I ended up in corporate finance, actually. That was before I came to singing. So I was 16 and I was working in corporate finance and then ended up on a trading floor. Wow. I bet you were great on a trading floor as well. I loved it. Yeah. The buzz... I secretly wish I'd done the trading floor just for a year. Oh, I can totally see you doing that. I, there's a little bit of me that thinks I yeah. slightly missed out. But, I mean, obviously banking is evil and don't do that. But there's a little <laughs> bit of me that I just wants to go and shout, bye, bye, sell, sell, at random and see if I can make some money. Um, <laughs> and when you, when you were working in banking, did your colleagues know that you sang? Did they no, not really. I mean, eventually, and they'd come and see me, you know, in shows and stuff, but I was in pop bands then, so, you know, I haven't even been back now that I sing opera, I haven't even gone back to the banks now, and I should do, really. Yeah, I sort of want you to send them a card, (laughs) (laughs) by the way, I'm at the ENO now, (laughs) please come and see me, and sponsor the uh, Down With Bankers season. Um, So, you are currently... In La Boheme. I am. Which is exciting. Just because not everyone will know the story of La Boheme, we thought we'd just do the story and then we could talk about it in that context. La Boheme means bohemian. Picture, if you will, it's 1830, Paris. No, it's 1930 in this production. Picture, if you will, it's 1930, <laughs> Paris. Thank you. There were lots of prospective artists uh, who were poor but happy. There were four bohemians. Four bohemians. 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 Am I saying that correctly? Bohemians. Like Rhapsody. Bohemians. Yes. And Scaramouche, Scaramouche. Means... <laughs> <laughs> will you sing the Fandango? Yes, you will. Uh, so there's four bohemians. What's a bohemian, Rachel? Uh, liberal, poor, lives in an attic. Excellent. <laughs> Very good. Artsy lives in an attic. Yeah. I actually knocked through to my attic so that I could be a bohemian. Um, there's the poet Rodolfo, the painter Marcello, the musician, the, not magician, there's the musician. <laughs> Pick a card, any card. I'm a bohemian. Chonard, am I saying that correctly? Um, and the philosopher Colline. And that's lovely. Yep. Very nice. The French. And their master, Splinter. <laughs> I think that's a Ninja Turtles joke. 
According to Puccini, they are poor but happy. How poor was Puccini, though? I don't think he was poor, because you don't write poor poor but happy. No, No. if you're rich, you write poor but happy. (laughs) And it's Christmas Eve, coming up to that, very atmospheric. Yay, not very long. They all intend to go to a bar, relate. Classic. As we will after the show tonight. But Rodolfo has not finished writing his poem yet. Classic Rodolfo. (laughs) I relate to that. Writing my show on the way to Edinburgh. Rodolfo promises to join them soon and the others leave. Now a neighbour, Mimi, knocks on the door and she asks him to light a candle for her. But Rodolfo's candle goes out too. Wouldn't you know it? She accidentally drops her key. Uh, when the two search flirting. For... Oh, when the two search for it in the dark, they touch each other's hand. The old, I've dropped my key in the dark. <laughs> nice. She knew exactly wow. what she was doing. <laughs> they, they fall in love then. At the cafe, Rodolfo introduces Mimi to his friends and Musetta. Is it Musetta or Musetta? Musetta. Musetta. Um, so I'm going to say that again. She is currently singing the role of Musetta in La Boheme. That's to edit in later, Tom, so don't look uncultured. <laughs> and Musetta, that's you. That's me. Who is the painter Marcello's lover. I don't think you should just define yourself as a lover there. I think this is typical Wikipedia. <laughs> Arrives. Well, they describe me as a tart with a heart. A tart oh. with a heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Six <laughs> members enjoy their Christmas Eve. The next year, God, this is Act 3 now, and we've only just got past Christmas Eve. In February, Mimi visits Musetta and Marcello. Mimi consults Musetta about Rodolfo, who was recently cold to her. Then Rodolfo visits Marcello. Basic Hollyoaks plot. <laughs> Mimi hides at once. Uh, Rodolfo says to Marcello, I love Mimi, but she has tuberculosis. <laughs> That's love, isn't it? Bit of a curveball. She's got TB. I am poor, and I can't buy any medicine for her. And can't take care of her. I should say goodbye to her. That doesn't seem like love, does it? That seems like the opposite of love. That's I think not in sickness or in health, is it? We have to say, and I am as surprised as all of you are, that this Wikipedia entry for the synopsis doesn't do the opera justice. <laughs> can I just it say, is fantastic. Though, oh, can I just say, though, God bless the NHS. Because this is what it's like without it. This is what it's like without you get dumped by your boyfriend because you've got TB and he's like, I can't afford to pay for it. <laughs> this is what it's, I mean, don't even. Okay, sorry. Back to the plot. Um, I should say goodbye to her. Don't dump your girlfriend because I really don't like you now. Then Rodolfo notices Mimi. They love each other but decide to choose to live separately. That's wise though because it's more romantic. Keep the romance alive. Conscious uncoupling. <laughs> <laughs> After some time, the four bohemians live happily as usual. Uh, now there's spoilers now. If you don't know this show, do you want to know what happens in Act 4? If you don't want any spoilers, look away now. <laughs> Mazetta runs into their room with a dying Mimi. Mimi really wants to die at Rodolfo's side. Does he not want to catch it or something? It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. His friends go out to come up with the money to buy medicine for her. Again, protect the NHS. Rodolfo and Mimi remember the time they enjoyed together before. When their friends come back, Mimi takes her last breath. Oh, this is always awful. So sad. Rodolfo shouts Mimi's name and breaks down crying. It's so um, sad. It's so sad. It's so sad, but it's very beautiful. And it, the music, what I think about operas is they're generally uh, the most angelic, soul-enlightening experiences set to the plot of an episode of Two and a Half Men. (laughs) 
So often, though. So always the comedies. Always the comedies. It's like a really bad sitcom plot. And then the music is like that of angels. You feel like if you don't believe in God for a minute, you do. Um, it's absolutely remarkable. So you are playing Mazetta. I'm playing Mazetta. How yeah. is it coming to this role? Um, it's been quite a challenging one, actually. Um, we're talking about patriarchy and how a woman looks on stage. I'm quite sexual on stage. And when I very first started this role, I was covering it at Scottish Opera. And um, I found that there was kind of the stereotype as well. I'm black, obviously. And um, so it looked quite... It was the stereotype of being an exotic woman on stage, plus the sexuality. So actually, I ended up going to... Every time I came off stage, going to actually go to therapy, go to coaches, to actually unravel some of the unconscious social systemizing that was going on in my own brain. So I could be free, so I could own my sexuality. I was also brought up in the church. So I just found there was a lot of shame that came up. So I really wanted to unpick all of that, actually. And, you know, I'm now an Ian Harwood artist doing Musetta here. And this beast has unleashed because I've done all this work. And it's a little bit scary because <laughs> I'm realizing that I'm a little bit like her in some way. <laughs> yeah, but it's so freeing. I feel like I've, I'm a woman, I'm allowed to be sexy. I'm allowed to be, I'm allowed to flirt. You know, I'm allowed to dress the way I want to, move my body the way I want to. And if I hadn't had the opportunity to actually be involved with this role, I wouldn't have known what I was inhibiting in myself because of the unconscious stuff that is put towards me and because of what is happening for me myself that I needed to unravel. That is really interesting mm. because there's something about opera of all the forms of music that comes from such a... Well, you have to push from the diaphragm and you, it has to come from such a deep place and it has to sort of encompass all of you. So do you think it's worth feminists learning some... Like maybe going for some singing lessons if they have access to that, to learn some opera, to sort of feel some of these things and to push some of these perhaps societally imposed uh, inhibitions off us? Well, I think singing opera takes you to the absolute end of any emotion. And when you sing, they always tell you to take your breath from your vagina. <gasps> yeah, well, she said it. <laughs> it's not from the diaphragm, it's from the vagina. No, it? well, the diaphragm is what makes it work. But when you're thinking of the breath, you have to think of the breath that low down. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Yeah. I did not know this and I'm being educated. <laughs> yes. So I do think that when your emotions do come up, you are unleashing something in yourself that you didn't know was there just because of the music and where it takes you vocally where it takes you spiritually and how deep it touches your soul because it is exaggerated emotions wow so pop it's more from the chest and jazz is more from the stomach and opera's from the vagina <laughs> making it in many ways the most feminist of all the musical art forms And I speak I, inclusively when I say, you know, whatever genitals you have, presumably it's from the, the genitals. Yes, yeah, exactly. But you're using your whole body, you know, your whole body has to be engaged for you to actually make this sound that needs no mic. Oh. 
This sound that needs no mic, that's a good slogan, isn't it? <laughs> this sound that, that needs, needs no mic. Pop do, band. Do you think anyone can be an opera singer? Like, you just sort of absolutely went for it and committed to it. Yes, I do think. I know everybody doesn't think that. But I do believe that everybody can. I've got this real big thing around everybody can. And I do feel that you can do anything you want to a level. I'm not saying that somebody would be the next superstar. You're but... managing my expectations now, Dean. <laughs> what she said is, to a level, yeah. Deborah, you can be an opera singer. Yeah, to, to whatever is your level, because everybody's sure. level is different. <laughs> yes, and my level will be quite low. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter, though. I'll enjoy it. Yes, it doesn't inhibit you from actually engaging with something that you love. And I think that's all round for everything. Mm. This week... Um, who was it that said, it was the head of Ofsted, said we shouldn't be encouraging uh, children and young people into arts programmes and arts degrees because it gives them an unrealistic expectation that they'll be able to work in the arts. So, isn't that awful? But firstly, that really limits the ambitions generally of disenfranchised or working class people and children because if you're posh your uncle jerry will sort you out you know that's how it works if you're posh there's always a connection it's just i've heard it so many times it's like isn't doesn't doesn't toby's uh, isn't toby's uncle still working in chambers isn't isn't isn't, you know isn't isn't uh, wasn't sebastian's best man working at mi5 surely he can get you in and there's those connections. But the other thing is, which I think is more key, is that the implication is, is that the only value in studying the arts is to trade it for money, is to be yeah. professional. Yeah, exactly. Well, in, and the way that the government is dealing with finance at the moment is that there has to be that payoff. That's the only way they can think about it, isn't it? Is that we have to get something out of that. Like, art can't exist for its own sake. Um, I mean, they can't can't afford for it to. So I can see why they're doing that, and um, I hate them. Um, (laughs) But that's that's why they... But that's why E&O is so phenomenal in this. They run an E&O Bayless programme that goes into schools and really brings the music to the kids and to the next generation. And they get to come and do shows on the stage as well. And I came and watched one recently and I, I was brought to tears because you had a really diverse group of people that you would see out in the world on stage. And I think that's where we need to go is to get as much diversity on stage as possible. Mm. So what we're looking at is a reflection of what's in the world. I was actually really pleased to see backstage so many diverse opera singers walking in and out of the canteen and coming to stage door to sign programs. Yeah, well, we did Porgy and Bess, didn't we? Which was one of the greatest experiences of my life, I have to say. Were you in that? Yes, and I opened the show. I sang Summertime. I played Clara. (laughs) Thanks, guys. That's so so brilliant. And that was a really... It was monumental. And you had 41 soloists in the ensemble. So the sound that this ensemble made was just breathtaking. And it was such a powerful piece. And you had Eric Green. I mean, he was just... Everybody was amazing. And it was a collective. And it's a family now that I will never lose. I'll have for the rest of my life. Wow. Yeah. I want to be you. (laughs) She's going to hurt you. I know. (laughs) Just be careful on the steps on the way out. Now... I'm kidding. I, no, I'm just so in admiration of your spirit. And I just think there is something about... I think we need some Guilty Feminist choirs starting, actually, because there is something about unleashing... Yes! What's that's a great idea. ...radiating out yeah. of you. 
uh, which is this sort of wholeness of self that I think often women are, and some men too, but uh, society does it to all of us, but I think women more, uh, we end up a bit ha- living at half-mast because we're constantly looking for the room to give us permission. Absolutely. And yeah. you can't when you're no. singing, or you, you can, but you get trained not to wait for the room to give you permission. Yes. Um, so if anyone's listening to this and they have children, mm. uh, especially girls, that they would like to bring them into this more confident space and find the things that you've found about losing inhibitions younger and earlier, mm. what would you recommend they do? Well, I think they can join the local youth groups because there's loads of operatic societies that do youth and youth theatre. Get them onto the piano, like learning the theory of music. Bring them to the opera, bring them to the ballet. This house especially is making it as affordable as it can be for anybody to get to the opera. So, you know, just know that it's for you and make it inclusive in your life. And also... Thank you. Also, there always are deals, like, if you are generally thinking about theatre and music, there are often, like, £10 ticket offers. And exactly. There are deals and you have yeah. to look at it. But it, sometimes it feels like permission to come into the building. Mm-hmm. It feels this awkward permission. And if you don't feel welcome or you can't afford it, there are ways and there are options. Absolutely. And the National Opera Studio as well at the moment are, you know, doing a case study of making sure that we get as many diverse people into directing, into stage management, into singing... Um, the Royal Opera House as well, where everybody's doing so much right now to make sure that we can get as much diverse people into music. And that means working class. I mean, diverse. It means everybody, Mm -hmm. you know. Do you think it's a good time for women in opera now? Do you think things are shifting? Because it has been traditionally run from the top by men, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And I do think that there's been a a really good, for me anyway, what I've witnessed, this is just my experience, a good shift. You know, Michelle Williams here is the head of casting and she's a woman. Sarah Jane Davis in Scottish Opera is a woman and she's head of casting. We had Jude Kelly that was at the Royal Festival Hall. You know, there are women that are stepping up and taking different places within Alice Farnham runs a whole thing for conductors now, for women that want to be conductors. You know, and I do believe that women are wanting to claim their own power and are beginning to find their voice and use their voice because the women that have got voices now are beginning to speak up, so it gives other women permission to do the same thing. So this is an industry you're welcome in if you are young and listening and thinking, can I be an opera singer? And the answer is yes. Yes, and, yes, and, yes. And if you're me and listening, the answer is to a level. Now, <laughs> <laughs> tell us about your CD, Nadine. This CD I made in January at Abbey Road Studios in Studio 2. And, uh, <laughs> and I was told to make a CD because people would come to my concerts. They would say, how do we access you outside of this? I was sponsored to make the CD. And after I made the CD... We were shocked to find out that this is the first CD by a black British soprano ever. Very good news, but far too late in the day. (laughs) So, yeah, it was quite a shock, actually. But I'm really glad that I did it because it's just about documenting a moment in time. And hopefully now other people will be, you know, encouraged to document their work because we want to see you. We want to know who you are. This CD is absolutely uh, stunningly beautiful. And when you hear Nadine sing any second now, you are going to 
absolutely, they're going to run out. And if they do run out, you can buy them on the Eno shop, or you can also coincidentally buy my book. Um, <laughs> it will make. What's your just... book called? The Guilty Feminist. Oh, sorry. All right. Uh, so, but seriously, if you think, oh, I don't know, I can't get into opera, when you've heard Nadine sing tonight, you will be wanting to buy the CD. It's called Nadine Benjamin Love and Prayer. Do buy tickets for La Boheme. Uh, they're at all price ranges. If you can possibly afford it and if you can possibly get here, it's really worth doing to see some of these stories written by dead white men retold in a lively contemporary feminist fashion and support this season. Because if you don't support the Dharma, the patriarchy season, then they put on a patriarchy rule season. And, and, and this, this uh, Boheme has been revived by Natasha Metherall, so, and she's a fantastic director. And the team and the cast are amazing. Wonderful. And uh, we have back to accompany Caroline Jayaratnam.
Caroline, Nadine Benjamin, everybody. With that beautiful, beautiful aria from La Boheme. So beautiful. So moving, so beautiful. And, and so uh, sexy. So sexy. And we really saw that unleashed. Oh, I just found it so beautiful. Caroline Jai Ratnam, thank you so much. And just so we can hear you a little bit on the podcast, um, thank you so much for coming in and accompanying tonight. And just tell us just a little bit about what you do and where we can see more of you. Hello, everybody. I'm a pianist. I play the piano in many, many different disguises, which might sound a bit like I go through my entire Harry Potter wardrobe, but I don't. <laughs> so I've played in the proms, I've played on TV and radio. I've worked at this fabulous establishment as a repetiteur as well. And last but not least, I also sing. Um, I sing with a group called Synergy Vocals. It's very high boy treble, that kind of sound. So we specialise in close mic Steve Reich. But I love my job, particularly playing the piano. Wonderful. Wow. We will put all of that on the show notes. So you can, if you check the show notes of the podcast, you'll be able to find out more about Caroline, where to get Nadine's uh, CD, how to book tickets for the English National Opera. And do remember, this building is very accessible because the operas are in English. And so you're able to actually understand them. So they really do take a lot of care to take down barriers where you think, oh, this isn't for me. It absolutely is for you. It's for women. It's for black women. It's for Asian women. It's for young women. It's for old women. It's for cis women. It's for trans women. It's for queer women. It's for straight women. It is for women. And it is for men to bring those as well. We like them just as much. If you can't afford a ticket, obviously just get in at the interval. Now... I'm joking, don't do that. That was very bad. But there was no one sitting in the seat and I was poor. Rachel Paris, thank you so much for coming and joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. It's been so wonderful to hear that music, amazing. Check out what Rachel's doing on the MASH report at the moment. Uh, if you're in the UK, you can find out on iPlayer or around the world. Uh, check out how you can get that on the BBC or find the clips. Um, she's doing absolutely remarkable work in satire in, in this country. Big round of applause for Rachel Paris. <laughs> Caroline Jaya Ratnam. <laughs> and the magnificent, the unleashed, the we are not worthy, Nadine Benjamin. <laughs> National Opera. See you in the harp. Good night. Bye. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Rachel Paris, and our very special guest, Nadine Benjamin, accompanied by Caroline Jaya Ratnam. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed and played by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Selinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Joanna, Gary and everyone at the Coliseum, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Yeah, yeah, or you can take it out if you want. Okay. Um, I like to take it out just so that then we're more of a, otherwise we're like soldiers on parade. Oh my God, now we're on a girl band. Yeah! (laughs) Oh my God, my dreams come true. If my dreams come true, in a girl band with an opera singer, I mean, she can carry us all. <laughs> I will mostly be doing just sort of Theresa May style dancing. Um. <laughs>